So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you want to uh, turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. Uh, growing up, uh, one of my best friends, Alan, we called him Big Al, um, he knew what he wanted to do from the time I met him. I met him in third grade, and uh, Big Al wanted to uh, be a... Uh, a uh, fighter pilot. I was going to say a firefighter pilot. I knew that was wrong. He wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, so he, uh, f- from the time I met him a- as a third grader, he was talking about this, and he he did the research. He knew what he needed to do in order to become a a, a fighter pilot. He wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, um, which meant he needed awesome grades. Um, he needed great SAT scores. I remember actually the, the A- minus that he got in high school. Uh, he was so mad at that teacher. Maybe rightfully so. I don't know. I, I wasn't there. Um, but he, he, he worked hard to get the best grades he could. Only got the one A- minus in high school. Uh, studied like crazy for the, uh, for the SATs. Did an awesome job. He had to interview, I can't remember if it was with the governor or a senator or something like that, to get recommended uh, to go to the Air Force Academy. Got to the Air Force Academy and once he was there, he had to graduate. It, it was something like the top 2% of his class in order to get into top gun school. Like just insane. My friend was really, really smart. Um, he, he worked really, really hard all, all throughout. Did everything he needed to do. Got to top gun school. Um, was doing great there, and, and then um, and then there was this uh, this this machine that simulated the G forces that a, uh, a, f- a fighter pilot had to be able to withstand, and um, they got him in there and put him through the thing. I imagine it spun around. I never saw it. I guess I don't really know. Um, but he his body couldn't handle it. Uh, his body just couldn't handle it. And he, he tried over and over again. He he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't quit until they finally said, Alan, it's, it's not going to work. Like your, your body just can't handle the G-forces necessary um, to, to be a, a fighter pilot. And Big Al, he took control of, of everything in his life that he could, but he couldn't control everything. We, ha- we actually have very little control in our lives, and, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's pretty good at pointing that out to us. Uh, here's your truth statement for today. The wise person obeys those in authority, fears God, and enjoys his gifts, even though there's much injustice in this world. So let's jump right in. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face has changed. Wisdom from God is, it is truly transformative. Uh, it's, it's holistically transformative. And, and here he says that, that wisdom makes his, his face change. Is, is that a metaphor? Well, we know, we know people that have hard faces. That You look at them, and you just think, man, that person has had a hard life. Like they, they look... They just look worn and, and battered from what they've been through in life. And here the preacher says, man, the face of a man changes with wisdom. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. 2008, there's an essay uh, written by Matthew Paris, who's an African journalist. Um, he's an atheist. He wrote a piece for the Times uh, titled, Why Africa Needs God. And, and he makes it clear in the article that he is, 
He does not, he is an atheist, he does not believe in God, but he admitted that Christians were making a tangible difference in his boyhood home of Malawi and across other African countries as well. Um, not only did he admire the good work that the Christians were doing with the sick and the poor, but he also wrote about how he looked. He said, the Christians were different. Their faith appeared to have liberated them and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. And he went on to say, whenever we entered into a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in, their face, in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to, something in their eyes. So wisdom is powerful. It is uh, transformative. Wisdom helps us navigate life. Right? What area of life do you not need wisdom in? We need wisdom in relationships with, with friends, with coworkers, with immediate family, with extended family. We need wisdom in, uh, in the workplace. We need wisdom in, in how we spend money and investing, saving, giving. We need wisdom in schooling decisions, in career decisions. We need wisdom in, in dating, in, in marriage, in, in parenting. Thank God for wisdom. And of course, Solomon, if the preacher is Solomon, um, uh, Solomon knows how great wisdom is. Uh, you might remember that the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's wisdom, uh, and, and she couldn't believe that there could be a person this wise. So she traveled because she wanted to know for herself. So she spent time with Solomon, and she had all kinds of questions that, that she had ready for Solomon. She'd ask a question, and he would share. He'd give his answer. I'm sure she had follow-up questions to that. And, and after spending time with him, she concluded that everything she had heard about his wisdom was true, but it was only half of it. He, he was far wiser than she had been told. If someone knew how great wisdom was, it was Solomon, and he valued wisdom. Verse Verses 16 and 17, so in, in chapter 8, wisdom kind of uh, uh, sandwiches or bookends the chapter here. Verse 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Wisdom is limited. God is the only one who is all-knowing. You can be the wisest person, and that is a great asset, but it will not make you the master of everything. You can be wiser than authority, and it doesn't matter. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command. Because of God's oath to him, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although, the man's, trouble, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So the preacher takes us to the, uh, the court of the king. Right? Imagine yourself on the royal court. You're the cupbearer, okay? Last one, didn't cut it. You don't, you don't know what happened exactly, but you're the new cupbearer. You serve drinks at the royal table. This sounds like a, a glorified waiter, but it's, it's more important than that. The cupbearer was someone that had proven that they were trustworthy. There are all kinds of people who would love to have the king's power, all kinds of 
plots or potential plots against the king. What better way to kill the king than to slip something in his drink and get it handed to the king? So the cupbearer handles the drinks. They, They have to be trusted. So here you are. You're pouring the drinks for the king. You're privy to many of the conversations that the king has. You're right there as the king dines with royal officials, with his advisors, with other rulers from other lands. From time to time, you hear the king say something that's all right, but you know something that's better, right? You know a better way. You have wisdom, you have insight into this particular area of life. You can see what is best for the king, what is best for the people. And the preacher says, know your place. Do your job. You might know better than the king. You really might, but you're the cupbearer. Right? You, you aren't the king's advisor. Your job is to make sure the king's drink is, stay, is safe. He's saying, stay in your lane. You might know a better way, but what will that do? Is the king really going to listen to you? His word is supreme. As smart as you are, you need wisdom and understanding your place in the kingdom. He's saying, be smart. Be smart as you're under authority. Be respectful. Verse 3, he says, don't leave the king's presence in a hasty matter. The king is powerful. The way you leave a room could mean your life. Leaving the room in a hasty matter would be a sign of disrespect to the king. He says, don't be foolish. You don't even know how long this guy will be in authority. Your superior idea certainly isn't worth dying over. So he writes, verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. He says, keep the command and it will go well with you. Go against the king and it's not going to be good. Even if you're right, if the king's in a bad mood, it could be off with your head. So listen to the king, do your job, do it well, and that's how you'll be successful. However, he says there are times for everything. There, there are times when it's good to speak up, but you have to pick and choose those times. Right? No boss likes a know-it-all, and certainly a king doesn't either, but a wise heart will know the proper time to take a stand and the just way to do it because there is a time for everything. So, so maybe you take a stand when, when your idea, the thing that you know is, is going to be really, really beneficial for a lot of people and, and it's, worth, it's worth taking the risk of what could happen to you to help everyone. Or, or maybe there's a time when the person in authority over you is doing something that is just flat out wrong. It's morally wrong. It's, it's, uh, it's in direct opposition to what God wants. Uh, we had a family uh, that was a part of our church a couple years ago. They'd moved up here. She was a doctor. She joined um, a medical clinic up here and uh, was working there. Um, they, they'd been here several months before this happened, but she found out that their clinic was going to start performing abortions. And, and she wasn't going to have to do that herself, but, but she, she knew she knew there's no way she was going to be a part of a clinic that was doing that. She, she valued the life that, that God had given. So she went to her boss, had a conversation with her boss, didn't really go anywhere. She went to her boss's boss, kept going up the ladder, got as high as she could. And she was the new kid on the block, but, but she had her conviction. She, she wasn't going to give in. Neither were they. Um, so she... Uh, 
she realized that she was going to have to quit. And she'd signed a no-compete clause, so she couldn't be a doctor in Clark County. Um, they, they just moved here. Uh, they just remodeled parts of their house, not the whole house, but you know, the kitchen, just the way they want it, the bathrooms, all this different stuff. Thousands of dollars they'd poured into this house to get it just the way they wanted. Now they had to move. Guarantee uh, a big financial loss there, not to mention the relationships that they had developed in this community and in our church. It was time for her to take a stand. There's a number of biblical examples. We think of maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? There's a law that when the music came on, you had to bow before the, the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. But these three, they wouldn't bow down. And I wonder, I assume there were, there were other people there that feared Yahweh, that feared God. But, but they justified, okay, I'm going to bow down physically, but in my heart and in my mind, I'm praying to Yahweh. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't do that. They knew they were risking their lives. There was no guarantee at all that they'd be saved from the furnace. Maybe think of Daniel. Right? Daniel was a righteous, righteous man. Uh, there were people that were jealous of him, and they convinced Darius to come up with a decree that said no one could pray to anyone for 30 days unless it was to King Darius. And uh, Daniel went into his room like he did every day, prayed three times a day up in the tower. There's a window there. I'm sure he probably could have hidden somewhere, but he didn't. He kept doing, he, he kept doing it like he'd always done it before. He, he was taking a stand to pray before the true God. And he wasn't going to let anyone stop him from that. And you know the result. He was thrown in the lines in, having no guarantee at all that he'd be saved. Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 uh, the authorities in Jerusalem told him, hey, you guys got to knock off preaching the gospel. You've you got to quiet down. You can't do this anymore. They're commanded not to do it. And this is what Peter said. He said, we must obey God rather than men. And then he goes on to preach the gospel. <laughs> there are times when, when Christians don't just do what the authority says to do. Uh, our brothers and sisters around the world uh, have to navigate how to follow Christ in ways that are in direct defiance to their government. They're being persecuted. I actually bought a bunch of these books, The Insanity of God, um, uh, which tells tons of uh, fairly current stories about brothers and sisters in Christ around the world living in persecuted countries and, and how they're surviving and even thriving uh, in, in, in glorifying Jesus. Uh, so I've got a bunch of copies. This is not exaggerating. The best book that I've read at least in a decade. Um, so I've got like four copies up here. If you want one after service, come get it, to, give it, get it from me, and then when you're done with it, share it with somebody else. But, but there are brothers and sisters standing up for God when they know that, that they have to. Even when we know what is best or morally right, or, or, or even when we know that, that, that what's happening is in direct defiance of God, we are limited. Right? We're not in charge. We don't have power when we're under the authority of someone else, someone more powerful. But even the person in authority isn't as powerful as they seem. Verse 4 says, uh, the king of the word is supreme. Well, it is supreme among other people, but they've been given that power by God. Rulers come. Right? Authorities remain in power for a time. Nations rise and fall. But ultimately, no matter who you are, you are limited. No matter what your position in life, you are limited. Everyone answers to someone except for God. 
It's God who has authority. And as Paul tells us in Romans 13, he's the one who gives authority to kings and rulers. We keep going here in verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So verse 7, he says, you can't predict the future. Maybe you know the basic schedule of your day, but you don't have the power to, to, to make the details go down as you want them to. You can plan all you want, but you are limited. Verse 8, he says, can you retain your spirit in your body? We can eat right. We can eat all organic, all day long. We can take supplements. We can exercise and stretch. We can get enough sleep. You can do acupuncture or whatever you think is going to help you live longer. But we can't cheat death. We can do all those things right and still be blindsided while driving in your lane at the speed limit in a car that has all the airbags and safety features. You can still get nailed and die. We have very little control. We're not supreme. Even the king is not supreme. Someone put the second half of verse 8 this way. Um, as he's talking about no power of death, then, then someone said, uh, that is the battle we cannot escape. We cannot cheat our way out. We have no power over death. We cannot cheat death. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, a guy named Aaron Ralston, and I think we've got a picture of him. Aaron Ralston here, uh, you'll see, uh, that's a boulder. Um, Aaron Ralston's famous uh, because several years ago, he was in uh, Blue John Canyon in Utah, um, and as he was doing his thing, uh, a boulder slipped, fell, and his arm is trapped in there. Um, so he set up, uh, he took his... Uh, he took his harness and his climbing ropes. The guy was a, a former uh, mechanical engineer, by the way. So he took his harness and his climbing ropes, and he, he tried to set up a pulley system in order to get the rock off there. He's like sitting there doing the math. I, I think it's funny he took a picture, too, because this is like, I think this is before cell phones with cameras on it. Anyway, so he took a picture, documented this. He realized there's no way. There's no way he could do it. So then he took out his multi-tool, and he was chipping away at the rock. And, and after some time, again, He's kind of math nerdy calculated, this would take me 30 days to chip out a piece of rock big enough for me to get my arm out, and I only have two days of water. He said that within an hour, he knew he had to amputate his arm if, if he was going to survive. And he, had, he, he was estimating that his journey out of there in that condition would take him like eight to ten hours. So he put his harness on, got all his gear ready. He put a tourniquet on his arm. I know this is gross. I'm sorry. Um, he... He cut his arm off with, with a dull multi-tool um, and then got out of there. He had to repel out. Um, eventually, he, he ran into another person on the, the trail uh, that helped get him to safety. Amazing story. Absolutely amazing. Uh, his book uh, is called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. There's a movie, too, that I haven't seen. I think it's called 127 Hours. Um, this is not the first time he's cheated death. He, he was also in an avalanche, totally buried him and another guy. Managed to survive that avalanche. That that guy that he was buried with won't talk to him anymore because he feels like he just takes too many risks and he, he puts people in harm's way. Um, he's cheated death multiple times. Uh, someday Aaron Ralston will die. 
It doesn't matter how smart he is. It doesn't matter how much gear he has with him, how prepared he is for his adventure. Someday he'll die. Now, he might not die out in the wilderness. Maybe, maybe he's going to be an old man uh, dying in his own bed. But, but someday he will die and give up his spirit. Do you ever try to ignore a problem and hope it'll go away? The answer is yes. We all do that. Right. Somehow, we hope that this problem will just kind of dissolve away or work itself out. And the problem is sometimes that actually happens, like rare enough for you to think, oh, it's, it's going to happen often. But, but usually, ignoring a problem doesn't help it go away. Right. The preacher, throughout this book, he makes us think about death. Because we can bank on death. That one day, you will take in one last breath. You'll exhale, and as he says, your spirit will leave your body. This life will be done. We, we do a pretty good job of pretending death isn't coming, but all of us one day will die. Glad you came to church this morning, huh? Well, preacher gets into more areas of life that we have no control over. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the, uh, the, heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. We've heard things like this from the preacher before. Right? That, that the wicked seem to have their way. That they're often rewarded in their wickedness in this life. There's this description. The wicked are going in and out of the holy place. We don't know if that's, maybe it's Jerusalem. Maybe he's talking specifically about the temple. And he says that they're praised. And it's not clear, are they praised while they're alive? Like, like people like them, they got accolades even though they're wicked. Or was it in their death that, that they were praised? Like at their funeral. You've been to a funeral before where where some things are shared, and you're like, yeah, that's not quite how it was. There's a little uh, photoshopping going on with, with the person's life. Um, either way, the, the preacher's saying that the wicked, they're praised. They, 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 they cheat, they scheme, they have these evil plans, and they get away with it, and it's out of our hands. We're powerless to pre prevent this reality. He says one reason is that consequences for wickedness are not executed quickly. And, and he notes that, that hearts are evil, that, that everyone's heart has this wickedness within it. Now, if you have kids or if you've been around a parent trying to parent kids, you, you've seen this, this, uh, this go down before, right? Kid does something, parent gives a threat that's like totally unrealistic, right? Or it'll never, never happen. The kid knows it's not going to happen. For me at home, I'll be in the middle of something and one of my kids will do something and, and I'll say, that's it. Yeah, I'm totally frustrated. I'm like, you're getting a consequence for that, right? And it's, the reason I say that is because I, in my mind, I always want these perfect consequences that are just and, and feel just wise and, and just, man, that's really going to get them, right? But I never have those, never in the moment. I think of those like a year or two later. So, so my kid, right, when they're out of that situation, so I'll, I'll look at my kid and say, you get a consequence for that. And I know internally they're like, okay, make your sad face now, 
look like you feel really bad and dad's probably going to forget about this after he's done washing the dishes or whatever. Right? And the same behavior keeps going on. There, there have been numerous studies and surveys that many people admit that uh, what keeps them from doing wrong things, unethical things, immoral things, is what could happen to them if they get caught. In other words, people would cheat, steal, lie, break the rules, whatever, if there's a guarantee they wouldn't get caught. We don't have the moxie to do what's in our hearts. What keeps you from driving as fast as you want? A ticket, right? The possibility of your car being impounded, jail, hopefully that you'd be a danger potentially to others as well. But, but it's, it's, it's the, the penalties, the repercussions that keep us from doing what we want. The preacher says that the wicked thrive because the penalty isn't executed quickly enough. And that can be so frustrating to us. And yet, there's also God's grace in that. Second Peter, uh, Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is for people to turn from sin and to turn to him and to trust in him. That's what repentance is, that we would turn away from our sin, our self, our schemes, thinking that we know the best way to navigate this life and turn to him and trust in him as our savior. And Peter tells us, God has patiently given the world time, time to repent. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, and by that I mean recognizing that, that you sin, that you've sinned against God, the creator, and that you stand condemned before this perfectly holy God. You admit that, that you can't make up for your sin. There's nothing you can do to take care of your sin, that you needed Jesus to die on the cross for you that he rose from the dead, that he defeated sin and death, that he offers you grace based on his work, meaning you didn't do anything for it, you couldn't. It's, it's totally a gift. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus to save you from sin, what are you waiting for? God is patient with you, but you don't know the number of your days. What are you waiting for? Jesus followers, if you have trusted in Jesus, who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you sharing the good news of salvation with? Who are you praying for opportunities to share with? As individuals and, and as a church, we have to ask, ask ourselves, how are we participating in what God is doing globally with the gospel? I'm really excited. Uh, next month, we get to have our newest missionary, uh, Kayla Thomas with Frontier. She's in India with the team. Uh, she's going to come to our service and share with us. Our, our staff a few weeks ago, we spent most of our staff meeting with her. It was one of the best staff meetings we probably had in, in two years. Uh, just so, so exciting to hear from her and, and what's, what's been going on with her team and the challenges and how to pray. So she'll be with us in a month. But how are you, uh, how are you engaged in, in reaching the lost both here and across the globe, Christians? Verse 14, he says, There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Right? This is an enigma that wicked get rewarded like righteous people should, and righteous people are treated like wicked people deserve. It's out of control. But he says, don't think 
that, that wickedness is the way. Verses 12 and 13 take a dramatic turn. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Even though in this life the wicked get away with a lot, many of them seem to thrive and prolong their days. And we see this, right? You see this at school. You see this at work, right? There's someone that's sneaky. They cheat, they lie, they manipulate, they backstab, they gossip, they, they cut ethical corners. While you're not doing everything perfect by any means, but you're trying to do your job with integrity. You're trying to be honest. You're, you're, you're avoiding cutting the corners. You don't take advantage of people, but it's your corner-cutting counterpart that thrives. And the preacher says, he knows. Right? It, what we're used to hearing from the preacher is, I have observed or I've seen. But here he says, he knows that it will be well with those who fear God. A day is coming when it will be well with those who fear God. It might be hard to see that in this life. You might not even feel like you get glimpses of that in this life. But the preacher says a time is coming when it will be well with those who fear God. I shared this quote last week from uh, Pastor Philip Ryken. Um, he said that the fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. Right? Someone sees who God really is and there's this fear and this holy caution that they have now and it, and it changes them. But the person who fears God will not have everything in this life go their way. Right? You will be wronged. You will see evil people rewarded. But he says it will not go well with them once death comes, once they step into eternity. Those who fear God, those who fear the one who is in control, who has absolute authority, will live differently. So do you, do you live as one who fears God? Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus in Matthew 12.36 he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Man, do you think about that throughout your day as you talk? Psalm 139, 2 and 3 says this about God. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. God sees everything, everything we do. What's it like when at your office when the boss is on vacation? Right? There's a different vibe. Everything's a little bit more relaxed. People maybe take a little bit longer lunch breaks than company policy. People spend a little longer at the water cooler. Right? There's a feeling almost like an office party could break out at any moment. Like it's, it's a little fun when the boss is gone. Uh, Michael Scott, uh, character... <laughs> Not a theologian. Uh, Michael Scott, a character uh, from The Office, um, th there was a, a time where he was without, like, I think it was the regional manager for months. And he said this. He said, I thrive under a lack of accountability. <laughs> if you've never seen The Office, he did not thrive. This man was a train wreck. 
Humanity thinks that it thrives under a lack of accountability. We thrive when we fear the Lord and live accordingly. So do you live knowing that God is there, knowing that God is real, that God is watching? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 helps us understand how to live life. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It will not be well for the wicked, for those living as if there isn't a judge. Their days of living large will come to an abrupt halt. The abuse of power, their disregard for people, their sinister deeds will all come into judgment, and it will be terrible for the wicked. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So easy enough, right? Don't be wicked. Well, the preacher describes the wicked this way. He says, the one who doesn't fear God. That's, that's who's wicked. In the last chapter that we were in, chapter 7, the preacher tells us there's not a righteous man on earth who, who always does good and never sins. Everyone's guilty of sin. None of us are good. The Bible tells us wages of sin, uh, wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life. What we have come into us, what we've earned is death eternally, judgment. The preacher says it will not go well for the wicked. That's everyone without Jesus. The righteous are only righteous because they fear the Lord and they trust in Jesus to save them from sin. So you might live a really moral life. You might follow all the laws of our land, but those aren't the standards that God judges by. The fear of God recognizes that you need to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Verse 15 says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This isn't, this isn't sarcasm here. So how can he say this? If you live as one who fears the Lord at the end of the day, he says, you can kick up your feet and enjoy what God has given you because it is in God's hands. If you've been obedient to God, right? if, if you let him be your strength, if you've remained in him, you've, you've, you've tried to be faithful with what God has given you that day, he says you're able to sit back and enjoy because God is the one who is in control and you can trust him. Tomorrow we'll have a whole new set of challenges new opportunities for you to follow Jesus in. But he says, enjoy what God has given you. He, he says, you can, you can cook up a good meal. You, you can enjoy a beverage and be filled with joy because God is in control. And it's easy to see the, the brokenness of our world, to see just how messed up everything is and feel the weight of it as if it's on you. I know we've got a lot of people in our church uh, that your job is, you're in one of the helping professions, right? You're a counselor, you're a nurse, you, you're a social worker. And, and I imagine uh, every day you come home and, and you could carry the weight of that. And, and the preacher says, no, it's up to Jesus. Now, we partner with, with Christ, right? And we could, we, could, um, we could overestimate our value, but we could also underestimate what God calls us to do. He's called us to be on mission with him, and we need to be obedient to where Jesus leads us. But we aren't the end-all, be-all. Christ is. 
There's great comfort and joy in knowing Jesus is making all things new, that he will restore everything that is broken. So do you live in the fear of the Lord? Is your life marked by obedience to Christ? Do you abide in Christ, or are you trying to make things happen on your own? At the end of the day, do you rest trusting that Jesus is the Lord and is, control, is in control? Or do you fret like you're the one who's in control? What's hard for you to trust God with lately? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you. We acknowledge that you are the King of Kings, that your word is supreme, that everyone Everyone in this world, everyone throughout history will bow to you, Lord. Jesus, I, I pray for us as a body that we would live in this, this holy caution knowing that you are God because we've seen who you are. Even only just a glimpse, we see how great you are. And I pray that our lives would actually be different that, that like the, the African journalist I quoted, that, that the places we go because of you, Jesus, people would be changed, that there'd be hope brought through the gospel, Lord. Jesus, I pray for people um, that are here today that just don't know if they can trust you. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, would you work in their hearts and their minds? Would you help them? Would you give them the faith to trust in you, Jesus? Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.